So, yeah, we are doing a series on gospel-driven relationships, which is to say we have this conviction, which I think the Bible supports, that your horizontal relationships with other people are always connected to the vertical relationship, the relationship you have with God. And the, the Bible talks a lot about that with regard to forgiveness. The interesting thing is, in our day and age, the Christian idea of forgiveness is not as popular as it used to be. Uh, I think even the last time I did this talk, I think I opened up with one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. Some of you may know who C.S. Lewis is. And um, he, said, he said one time, everybody thinks forgiveness a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. In other words, we think it's a good idea, we just fall short, we find it difficult to actually do it, put into practice. But I will tell you, in, in the last few years, there have been more and more voices questioning whether forgiveness is actually a good idea, whether it's actually a safe idea. And even Mikey's prayer opening up, uh, I think, gives some of the reason why. More and more people are wondering about just this same old, same old injustice that we see and wondering whether or not forgiveness is allowing more and more evil to continue to be perpetrated. Uh, in particular, there was um, a few years ago, after the, the church shooting in Charleston, there was an um, uh, editorial, I think it was in the New York Times, basically just kind of lashing out at this same, same old story we see over and over again, where a white guy goes in and kills a bunch of black people, and then the black people forgive him. And nothing seems to change. Now, I think until we, like, feel the weight of that, um, I don't think we're really ready to talk about forgiveness. As Lewis says, it seems a lovely idea until you have something to forgive. But for some of you, like, the idea of forgiveness is actually more troubling than just, oh, I wish I could do it better. And I, and I, don't, I don't want to pass by that. Um, this really came home to me. I've been reading um, this guy, Tim Keller's new book, Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? And he really actually um, deals uh, the first couple chapters with this whole idea. Not everybody thinks that forgiveness is such a good idea. And uh, in the introduction, the little paper I gave you that's the introduction, uh, I want to show you a couple things here that I think will hopefully set up what we're going to talk about tonight. So this is uh, basically a, a section in, in Tim's new book where he talks about three approaches to forgiveness that have emerged in the secular culture. And, and you know, of course, that all of us live in the world and all of us have probably been influenced by these ideas. And um, I think we're going to see that the Christian idea is deeper and richer than these, but I want to at least name these things and a couple of the background beliefs that are playing into these things, right? So that we can kind of not just have the Bible be the Bible by itself, but have it actually um, interact with the, the worlds and the worldviews that are all around us, okay? So the first is cheap grace. Um, this is the non-conditional forgiveness model. And this is what a lot of people, I think, think the Christian idea of forgiveness is. 
And probably there's people here who have been harmed by this kind of cheap grace approach or by being told that if they don't forgive no matter what, that they basically have undermined uh, their Christian beliefs or their Christian testimony. The non-conditional forgiveness model Keller describes, he says all the emphasis is on the victim being therapeutically liberated from anger. Justice and reconciliation are not goals. The goal is what can this person who has been harmed, how can we get them to a place of healing and health, particularly mental health, and actually telling them that they've got to, for instance, reconcile or even forgive is only a good idea if it will actually help them get to a better place. But there's no, it's not really necessary for anything other than what's best for them. The non-conditional forgiveness model, you just have to forgive because it's killing you, it's hurting you. And therefore, you should try and get past whatever it is that has been done against you. Then there's the little grace model. And this one he calls the transactional forgiveness model in which all the emphasis is on the perpetrator meriting forgiveness. And you might ask, well, how do they merit it? Well, through extensive acts of groveling, repentance, and reparation. In other words, I will forgive you if you demonstrate that you are sufficiently sorry for what you've done. But if you don't, then you won't be forgiven. And then there's the third, the no grace, no forgiveness model in which forgiveness is abandoned completely in favor of the pursuit of justice for the victim. In other words, forgiveness is an impediment to the pursuit of justice. Now, what Tim says is all three of these models have in common that distinguishes them, though some of these may sound like the Christian view, what distinguishes all of them is that they're purely horizontal. They don't deal with the vertical. They don't have a vertical dimension. They all actually contrast the biblical view, which he would describe, and I I think is a good description, the costly grace model of forgiveness found in the Bible. Because the, the biblical view always has a vertical and a horizontal dimension. Two other things I, I wanna share with you from, from what he says that I think will be helpful. He talks about two kind of ideas and phenomenon that have really risen in recent years that are playing into how we approach this topic of forgiveness. The first is the therapeutic culture. And it shouldn't be any surprise um, that that is an important issue to consider and to take into account. When you think about forgiveness, you wanna talk about forgiveness in our day and age. He describes it this way, the focus is on the patient working through their own anger and letting it go. But the therapist is not to force their values of forgiveness on the patient. In other words, that would be inappropriate. The patient needs to work through their feelings, but the therapist or the church or their friends should not force the person who's been hurt to extend forgiveness because that would be to force our values onto someone who's vulnerable. There's a guy, Greg Jones, not your Greg Jones, I don't think, I think it's a different one, says that it's the church's 
Now this is his contention. The church's psychological captivity in Western culture that is the reason we have such impoverished contemporary understandings and practices of forgiveness. Because if all that matters is individual autonomy, your own freedom to do what you want, then forgiveness and reconciliation, which are designed to foster and maintain community, are of little importance. In other words, the biblical idea of forgiveness is not just for you personally and for your own well-being. It really has a bigger goal than that, as we'll see. But the therapeutic culture rarely does and impacts the way a lot of us think about forgiveness today. And then there's the new shame and honor culture, which is a fascinating thing. You probably know it as cancel culture, right? But it is really fascinating, you know, it really was sort of one of the hallmarks of ancient paganism that the least little slight or offense was taken very seriously. You know that an eye for an eye, right, was actually designed to stop people from overreacting to offenses. It, it would say, no, if, if they pluck out your eye, you don't get to kill them. You know, an eye for an eye was like a limitation, okay? Uh, upon the worldview in which it, it sort of was, was kind of brought into. Um, and, and then for a long time, as kind of the Christian idea sort of, you know, kind of permeated our society, everybody thought forgiveness is really what you should be able to be about. But we've really moved away from that in a lot of ways. Modern culture really teaches that our primary concern is to demand respect and affirmation of our own identity. People today are encouraged to respond with outrage to even the slightest offense, as was true in older pagan societies. However, the difference today is this. Modern therapy sees individuals as being oppressed and controlled by society's expectation, roles, and structures. And I'm not saying that that doesn't happen, but that's not all that's going on. Greater honor and moral virtue are assigned to people the more they've been victimized and subjugated by society or others in power. In other words, there's almost, and you see this, especially if you're on Twitter a lot like I am. I really like Twitter way better than Facebook. I don't know why. I guess because I like to argue with people maybe. But, um, but you know, you do see almost like a one-upmanship over who has been the most victimized and the people that have the most kind of moral ability to call things out are those who've been the most victimized. The, the problem though, and this is, this is what these two guys, Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning, have written a book about this, is this sweeps away the very concept of forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is now seen as radically unjust and impractical, as short-circuiting the ability of victims to gain honor and virtue as others rise to defend them. And, listen to this, and so this culture is littered with enormous numbers of broken and now irreparable relationships, which is cancel culture. We don't have to forgive, we don't have to reconcile. As a matter of fact, if we do, then we're not gonna be holding the evildoers responsible. Now, I think that's pretty fascinating, and I think when we come to this topic, I, I hope we see this is a much more complicated issue than just what C.S. Lewis described as everybody thinks it's a good idea until they have to do it. It's actually a much more 
intense subject. Thing is, though, we all long for it. We all long for it. And, and, and we wish it could flow through our world unless it's going to make our world a worse place, of course. There's a great story um, comes from Spain of a father and a son who had become estranged. The son ran away. The father sent off, went off to find him, searched for months and months to no avail. So finally, he decided in a last desperate attempt to find the boy, he would put an ad in the Madrid newspaper, and the ad read simply, Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you. And I'll bet you can guess what happened, right? 800 Paco showed up. Of course. Of course. We all want a world where forgiveness flows, but how can we get it? And is it really going to make the world a better place? Or will it actually just continue to perpetuate evil? Well, Jesus talks about forgiveness, as you might expect, in Luke 17. And I'm going to have you follow along as I read this. But first, I'm going to get a drink. This is Luke 17. It's not all the Bible has to say about forgiveness, but this is, I think, a good passage to talk about some of the key elements. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. Starting at verse 3. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink and after that you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. I just want to say one little thing about that leper story. Um, it's not necessarily the main point tonight, but it's worth pointing out. Sometimes people are like, you know, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. Have you ever heard anybody say that? He never actually claimed to be God, you know. Well, you know what? <laughs> this is clearly what he's doing. 
In the Greek, it says, when it says he threw himself down at his feet, it's literally one of the words used for worship in the Bible, the word that we use for when you prostrate yourself before someone. And, and what does Jesus say when this guy basically falls down to worship him? He does not say, get up, you blasphemer. I'm just a man. I'm just a good teacher. No, what does he say? Where are the other nine? Jesus receives worship, says it's the right thing to do, and says it's what the other nine should have done as well. So don't let people tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. If you have ears to hear and eyes to see, and you understand what he's saying in this culture, it's very clear what he's saying. They didn't put him to death for nothing. But back to the forgiveness stuff. Now it's interesting, you know, I love what the disciples say after Jesus gives his teaching. What do they say? Increase our faith. In other words, man, Jesus, this is kind of pretty difficult to think about. But Jesus in this passage teaches us about what forgiveness is, and he teaches us as well um, how we are to practice it. So let's dig into this. Um, I, I think one of the things that, that's often missed is, is what is meant when he says rebuke them in verse 3. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. This is different than that version that basically says forgive, no, uh, the sort of non-conditional forgiveness. Just forgive and forget, that kind of idea. No, Jesus says if you're sinned against, stand up. Rebuke them. Why does he say that? Because what the Bible says the ultimate goal of forgiveness is, is not just for you to feel better, not just for you to get it off your chest, but to stop the spread of sin. This is why, you know, Jesus links forgiving and rebuking. What is rebuking? Rebuking means coming against sin in the name of God. And Jesus says that's what you're to do when you're sinned against. You're not just to think of forgiveness as just ignoring what happened. Though I think a lot of people think of the Christian idea of forgiveness that way. They think of forgive and forget. And we'll talk about that a little bit later tonight. But what it means here is that Jesus is after stopping the spread of sin and restored relationships where sin no longer reigns and creates barriers. And this is one of the rubs between the way so many modern people think of forgiveness and the way the Bible is talking about forgiveness because we tend to think of it only in terms of ourselves. Is this good for me? Will this help me? Will this make me feel better? Will this make me more healthy? But Jesus is always thinking in terms of the community and restored relationships and the world and the spread of sin. And, and, and now, of course, some of us have probably experienced what was called rebuke that really wasn't done with the intent to bring healing and restoration. Um, to really rebuke someone with the goal of healing and restoration, rather than just getting it off your chest, you actually have to have forgiven them in your heart and want their good. When you're wrestling with 
forgiveness or being sinned against, one of the questions you should ask yourself is, do I want this other person to flourish? Do I want the kingdom to expand? Or do I just want to see this person knock down a peg? Now, if you're someone who loves to rebuke sin and find that it rarely leads people to be softened, then rather than being a peacemaker, you might be what we call a peacebreaker. I'm probably along that way, probably. Some of you, on the other hand, though, always want to forgive, but that really means ignore the issue without rebuking. And that means you're probably a southerner. And you're, <laughs> and you're a peace faker. A peace faker. Um, Jack Miller, who started Surge, the group we're going to go with on our mission trip to London, used to say, niceness will kill a church. There's no real community where niceness prevails. That's why the Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. Who can give you a life-giving rebuke? What kind of community do you have, right? The goal in true forgiveness is to stop the spread of evil, not just tell the other person off, and not just to end the tension. And you actually see that in the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus links forgiving with God's kingdom coming. Because forgiveness is the fuel of the kingdom. And that brings us to the next thing Jesus teaches us here, which is that true forgiveness is an action, not a feeling. And it's not based on the other person's sincerity. Now, trust me, we're going to talk about the difference between restored relationship and forgiveness. They're not the same thing. But forgiveness is not a feeling. How do you know that? Well, how, how could you really forgive somebody seven times in a day if it was all about your feelings? I don't think anybody could do that. And I, and I think Jesus says it that way so that we realize, okay, that's not just feel better about this person after they sin against me seven times in a day and keep coming back and it's obvious that they're not sincere and they don't really mean it because they keep doing it and their words are just cheap. So forgiveness, the way he's describing it here, can't be a feeling, and it can't be based on the other person's sincerity. And this is in line with what the Bible teaches about forgiveness all over the place, that it is an action. It can't be a feeling. It can't be based on the other person's performance or sincerity. And you might say, well, yeah, but what about verse 3? If they repent, forgive them. Verse 3 is talking about reconciliation. And reconciliation needs to come when trust has been restored. Right? We need to make a distinction between forgiveness extended as an action and restored trust. They're not the same thing. And you see that in other places where Jesus talks about forgiveness. Forgiveness extended does not automatically lead to restored trust. Because the goal of God's kingdom is to stop the spread of sin and restored relationship done unwisely may actually enable more sin to happen. True forgiveness means you take action to stop the spread of sin, not to let people continue to sin against you. Now, if you want more to kind of explore what does that mean practically, I can recommend no better resource than Dan Allender 
uh, Christian counselor, his book, Bold Love, um, which is about loving people boldly so that you stand in the way and don't let them continue to sin against you. Um, it's a hard thing to do and something, you know, talk to my wife if you want to kind of explore more about that or we can talk about it sometime. Um, so we, we see this in Mark eleven twenty five 25, that we are to forgive, period. It says this, when you stand praying, it's talking about in, in worship, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. And I think that's the forgiveness that is presupposed in Luke 17 in verse 3 when it talks about the restored relationship. In other words, to be able to do the restored relationship in verse 3, you have to have actually forgiven them in a way that's not based on their performance or sincerity, because verse 4 shows that this person isn't sincere and that you could never have your feelings change seven times in a day. All right, so then what is forgiveness? Let's get into the, 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 the components of it. Asking for forgiveness should always involve naming the wrong and the evil. Again, it's not just overlooking things. An apology is not the same thing as asking for forgiveness. Neither is saying, I'm sorry you felt bad. That's not the same thing as owning what you've done. True forgiveness involves the acceptance of a debt. The Greek word often translated um, forgiveness is a word that literally means let it be or I consent. Uh, it means to assume a debt and to assume a debt and not make the other person pay, you have first have to assess how much you've been robbed rather than pretending that everything is okay. Forgiveness flounders when we don't actually assess what we've been robbed of. Forgiveness does not equal forgetting. I told you I was going to talk about that. Jeremiah 31, 34, where God promises to remember our sins no more. I think that a lot of people misunderstand that. What God is saying is not that he'll suddenly develop amnesia, but he's made a commitment to not bring it up again. He is assuring us of his promise to not deal with us as our sins deserve. Dan Allender, who most of his counseling practice work has been dealing with um, survivors of sexual abuse. Um, so he, he deals with the hard stuff about forgiveness. He says this, I do not believe forgiveness involves forgetting the past and ignoring the damage of past or present harm. To do so, even if it were possible, would be tantamount to erasing one's personal history and the work of God in the midst of our journey. The only way for the forgive and forget mentality to be practiced is through radical denial, deception, or pretense. Remember, Jesus is the lamb who was slain, and he still bears the scars. Um, Michael Card, a Christian artist from really more like the 70s and 80s, y'all probably don't know him, but he was, he's also a great Bible teacher, lives down in Franklin. He had a, a great record with, with this song, Known by the Scars. Jesus is known by the scars. Even in his glorified body, he still bears the mark of having been sinned against. It's part of his story forever. Forgive and forget is not the goal. 
But then second, not only do we have to be able to name the wrong and not ignore it, but second, we have to pay the debt, assume it ourselves rather than requiring payment from the person who wronged us. This is the place, I think, where the disciples are probably like, Lord, increase our faith. How do we make others pay? Well, there's all kinds of ways. We're cold with them, try to shame them, demanding. Sometimes we slander them to others under the guise of wanting to share our hurt or one others about the person who wronged us. Sometimes we just secretly root for their failure. Now listen, there is a time when you need to go and talk to somebody about how you've been sinned against, okay? But I think you can know the difference when you make that kind of a regular practice because you're still trying to get back at this person. Dan Allender says, forgiveness involves canceling the debt that is owed in order to give the other person a taste of the glory of God. Now this is a hard thing, but it's what Jesus calls us to do. It means to not let them continue to sin against you because you want their good, not your own comfort. And the last point about this, and then we're going to talk about, okay, how in the world, where does this come from? Is to forgive means to revoke our right to revenge without losing our hunger for it. Christians should be more angry than they are. They should be. Romans 12 is, is a fascinating passage. It says this in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, and it's not always possible, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now this is a fascinating passage. Now, Bible scholars debate, what does it mean to heap burning coals on his head? Does that mean you're going to expose this person in a way that they feel and see their need to repent? Or does it mean that you're having a cleansing, sanctifying influence on them? I'm not actually sure. But I do know that what we're told to do is leave vengeance to, the, to God because he will make all things right. You see, the Christian idea of forgiveness makes no sense whatsoever if we don't believe that God is a God of justice who will leave no loose ends. Every sin ever committed will be punished on Jesus or on the person who committed it. There will come a day when there will be no more loose ends. And that is absolutely necessary to believe, to be able to actually practice forgiveness. Because I think that one of the reasons we find it so hard to forgive is we're just not sure if we forgive, if anybody will care to deal with the injustice that's happened. As a matter of fact, I, I, I really think you know, some of my friends who have really questioned and, and left the Christian faith, often there's a story of real hurt and trauma and, and seeming 
in some cases, I, 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 it breaks my heart, but I feel a sense of if I don't hold on to this, no one else will remember. And all I can tell you is Jesus treasures up every tear in a jar. Not a one of them is lost. And not a one of the sins committed will go undealt with. Jesus is going to make all things right. And the question is, are we willing to trust him in that? Now, the disciples, like I said, feel the weight of this. You see that in verse 5. Increase our faith. And what does Jesus tell them? Well, I, I think he says, you're right. You need faith. Because there's no, again, the vertical and the horizontal are connected. If you don't believe that God is Lord and that he will make all things right, then what Jesus is telling you to do is pretty crazy. And again, that's why I think as more and more people have said, I just don't know about this Christian idea of forgiveness, it makes sense. The only way Christian forgiveness can be actually practiced the way the Bible describes is if we believe that we are incredibly wealthy and fabulously safe because the Lord our warrior will make all things right. And the Lord Jesus has given us incredible riches. The only way you can pay the debt is if you're sure you can afford it. That's why Jesus says, if you have faith, you can do what seems impossible. In Jesus' day, mulberry trees were considered to live 600 years. So plant a tree and then pull it up and have it, you know, throw it in the sea, that seems literally impossible, right? But faith is powerful not because it's something we have that we can wump up. Faith is the ability to understand, sorry, it's not the ability to just keep your head up. It really is a whole soul reliance on Jesus who lived and died in our place. And Jesus teaches us how our faith can grow in the rest of this section. And the first thing he says is humility is absolutely necessary. You have to be humble to forgive. And, and Jesus, this, probably this parable offended some of us. Did it offend you a little bit? It's like, wait, Jesus is telling us that the servant comes in and he's hungry and he's worked all day and he doesn't get to sit down and eat. But what Jesus is saying is if you really understood who was who, which again, in our day and world, we don't think anybody's better than anybody else, okay? So you gotta put yourself back in this context. The, the servant knows their place. And Jesus is saying, do you? W when you understand your relationship to me, do you understand who I am and who you are? That even if you do your duty, you don't have something like to control me by. You can't control me. You have to be humble to forgive. You can't forgive someone when you feel superior to them. And so Jesus says, in order to be able to forgive, you actually have to have a right sense of your own neediness. You have to have a right sense of your own neediness. Um, Miroslav Volf um, says this in his incredible book on forgiveness. 
and recon reconciliation exclusive, was it? Um, Embrace, I forget, the, the uh, embrace is the, the second word. Anyway, th listen to this. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Forgiveness flounders when you consider the other person to not be a human who deserves mercy as well. I'm not going to get into this. Um, Eichmann's story, but it, it, maybe, it's, maybe you've heard this story of um, when one of the Holocaust survivors was asked to testify at the Nuremberg trials, and he saw Eichmann, one of the guys who had basically masterminded the concentration camps. And when, when Eichmann walked into the courtroom, the, the Jewish guy, Demur, basically just like dissolved sobbing. And he was interviewed on 60 Minutes later by Mike Wallace, who said, what was it that made you, made you dissolve like that? Was it seeing this man that had, had been responsible for the death of your friends and family? He said, no. When I saw him walk in the courtroom, I saw he was an old man, just like me. And I wept because I realized I was capable of that. Real forgiveness, real reconciliation happens when we understand that. And so much of holding on to unforgiveness is often saying that that person is in a whole different category. Again, it's not easy, but what Jesus says about us helps us understand there but for the grace of God go we, right? You can't... Um, Forgive when you look down at other people. You can only pity them. Next thing, though, about the lepers. How does that play into this? Jesus says that the posture of true worshipers is to be cleansed and grateful. You can't forgive unless you see yourself as rich. If you only see yourself as an unclean leper, you'll never be able to forgive because you can't forgive if you're filled with insecurity. And you can see this in your own life. The things that are the most difficult to forgive tend to be the things where you're the most insecure. In other words, you can forgive certain things because it doesn't strike at the very heart of who you think you are. What does that mean then? It means that if you really understood how fabulously wealthy you are and safe in the love of God, it would help you forgive the places where you don't think it's possible. I know it's somewhat counterintuitive, but that's what Jesus is teaching here. The posture of the leper who recognizes he's been cleansed is no longer a leper. And he's grateful because he knows where credit is due, is the posture that is on the path to being able to forgive. Practicing forgiveness as a regular spiritual discipline is vital for your heart to feel rich. In some ways, it's hard to really appropriate the gospel for yourself until you realize how hard it is to forgive and how needy we are for God's help. I would say the same thing about love. If you're 
in a relationship with someone, my hope is that you would pray that God would give you his love for this other person. I always say this when I'm doing weddings. Like, it doesn't matter how nice you dress up, how fancy the ceremony is, how much pomp and circumstance. There's no way that the emotions that get stirred up on that day can sustain you in a relationship loving another sinner for 50 years. Like what we hope to do in a Christian wedding is point you to the love of God that is greater than the love you could ever have for another sinner. I mean, God says to his people Israel uh, in, in the book of Hosea, he says, your love for me the perfect one, the all-glorious one, is like the morning mist. As soon as the sun rises, it's gone. So if your love for God is so fickle, how could you possibly love another person till death do you part? It's only if God would give you his love for this other person. And it's only if God would give you that love and that forgiveness that you can actually extend it to another person. Where are you insecure? What can't you forgive. We need to see Jesus has made us wealthy in the very places where we feel so needy and empty and poor. And how did he do it? He did it by taking our shame and our sin and giving us his wealth and his beauty. He literally became like a leper, cast out of the presence of God. As he hung on the cross, what did he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why, why have we, I've been cut off. Forgiveness is costly, but it brings healing. We may think that to forgive means that the other person wins, but that's a lie from the pit of hell. To forgive means that Jesus wins. Annie Dillard says that unforgiveness is like drinking rat poison and hoping the rat will die. Sometimes, it's like I said, I think we hold on to our pain as a certain kind of feeling like God owes us. You will never come to joy and peace through that. Recognize God doesn't owe you, but Jesus gave everything for you, and he didn't have to. That's the astonishing thing about the gospel. The way Paul puts it in Romans 5, 8, he says, this is how God demonstrates his love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I hope the weight of that, that's a demonstration of the love of God. Before we could do anything to help ourselves or to impress him, Christ died for us. Holding a grudge always has a goal, but it's probably not one you're fully aware of. Ask yourself this question. What am I afraid of if I forgive this person? And let forgiving become a doorway into understanding the Lord's forgiveness of you. And the last thing I want to say is to do this, you need a community. You really do. For one thing, you really need to understand the difference between normal sinners and evil people. Very serious about this. If you deal with somebody as a normal sinner who really lives to harm others, and I've known a few of those people, some of them have been parents, then you are going to get really messed up. So you need to be able to talk to somebody. You need to be able to name 
the hurt so that somebody can help you understand how then will I love? How then could it be possible for any kind of reconciliation and restored trust? Is that safe? Don't try to figure that out on your own. And I would even say, don't just try and figure that out with other 18 and 19 and 20 year olds. You really do need some help with those sorts of things. And then you need a community that speaks and extends forgiveness regularly. And here's the thing, there's, there's two interesting verses. There's one verse that says, love um, overlooks or uh, yeah, over a multitude of sins, right? So you don't need to jump on every little thing. It's impossible to live in a world where people jump on every little thing. But Galatians also says, if you see a brother or a sister trapped in a sin, then you who are spiritual, restore them gently. So we do have a role to play in each other's lives, but we don't jump on every little thing. We really try to take stock and say, I think this brother, this sister is really trapped. And, and do I have the ability to restore gently? Maybe I can't because I'm still just so mad at them <laughs> that maybe I need, to, I need to kind of work through it. Maybe I need to get some help, somebody to be able to pray with me that I could move towards this person. But we want to be a community where the spread of sin being stopped matters and where forgiveness is the fuel of the kingdom. There's a lot of heavy stuff I know that we've talked about, but Jesus understands. Jesus understands. And he can be trusted. Not all the people you know can be. So please know that. Let me pray and then we're going to sing a final song.